Monday, January 13th. What to say? <laughs> Apparently not. Simply what to say. <laughs> what the is show, it? the name of the show. Oh, the name of the show. LA Podcast. LA Podcast. And some of the people involved. The suspects. <laughs> Myself, Alyssa Walker, Hayes Davenport, Scott Frazier, here for another very newsworthy week, I would say. Yes. Or I don't even know how to describe it. They, well, yeah. It's it just inter- kept coming. People thought it was news, but some of it was not really. Whether or not it was newsworthy. Newsworthy. It was news it happening. Was news. <laughs> newsworthy as an adjective is not exactly like. to us. Seaworthy. You can't. Yeah. Do we want to talk a little bit about some of our weeks, different things that happened to us this week going into the, some of the news of the week? Sure, we I, could call it an L.A. story. That's a great idea that yes. you just had on the fly. I will start. So my my L.A. story for this week, I'm going to follow up briefly on something I was talking about last week. I, I started looking into some of the Ellis Act evictions that had happened on a specific uh, set of lots in my part of Silver Lake. And I'm, I was just curious about what exactly went down there and how it came to be that this these lots were cleared out for the the, the building of a hundred uh, unit apartment complex. I did get some of those documents back from the HCIDLA this past week. They basically said all of those units were vacant at the time that the Ellis Act filing was received by the HCID, hmm. which is interesting. Because then why would they use the Ellis Act? So I had to... The kids would call it sus. <laughs> I had to educate myself a bit. And it turns out that you do have to, if you're going to, as a landlord, remove any RSO units from the rental market, regardless of whether or not they're vacant, you do have to file the same paperwork with the city. That being said, can you think of a single place in the city of LA where you would just happen upon four uh, rent-controlled units that just happen to be empty <laughs> that are, that are just vacant? Like kind of a coincidence. So I just I, I made some additional discoveries as I was going through the forms collected by the, the housing department in the city of LA. They do collect additional information, specifically the rent registration. If you are a landlord uh, that has RSO units. Every year you have to register those units with the city. You probably are aware of that if you rent in the city of LA because you probably get a notice from your landlord every year. This is the thing that tells you how much your rent can go up, etc. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, you probably remember the event where my landlord over wanted to overcharge me and then was was shot the fuck down by my right, oh, righteous tweet about right, righteous Twitter fury. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. She she is a, a ninety year old woman who lives in constant fear of my <laughs> of my TL. You guys are vicious. So anyway, the, that is a form that that I was able to request from the, the housing department. And I'll see what comes out, out of those just so I could see. I requested those all the way back to 2010 so I could see when exactly those units became vacant. But additionally, in 2016, the city of L.A. passed another ordinance that is a uh, straight up rental registry. So theoretically, I have no idea whether or not I'll actually get all of these files back. I do believe they're public records. But theoretically, since 2016, the landlord should have been filing like 
which units were vacant, which ones were occupied, and how much they were collecting in rent for each of those. So I'm just going to continue down this rabbit hole, see where it leads me. Wow. And then that just doesn't show up next week. (laughs) We never hear. This is our first like LA podcast reports. It, is, it will be like a LA podcast on your side. LA, LA uh, con- confidential situation <laughs> yeah. where you just have to come find me. And there it turns out there are a bunch of sex workers who are made to look like me, but <laughs> are not actually me. So I'm interested to see what happens there. My LA story, I'm just going to read someone else's LA story. This is a story from the LA Times that I am going to read in its entirety. So yesterday in Palms, you may or may not have heard there was a person who's homeless living in an encampment on uh, like on Venice, like in Sepulveda, kind of between uh, Sepulveda and the 405, who was shot and killed by police. Right. And my understanding is that the, the person was unarmed, was having a mental health mm-hmm. crisis. And this is the story. I'm just going to read the entire L.A. Times story about this. Los Angeles police shot and killed a man in Palms on Saturday afternoon while responding to a report of a person with a gun. Police received a radio call at 1240 p.m. saying that an armed person was on Venice Boulevard between Sepulveda Boulevard and the 405 freeway, said Officer Drake Madison, an LAPD spokesman. The man was taken to Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center where he was declared dead. The man was described as Latino, age unknown, Madison said. He was struck at least once by gunfire. Venice Boulevard was closed between Sepulveda Boulevard and Globe Avenue while the LAPD's Force Investigation Division investigated the shooting. That's it. No yep. line about traffic being a headache for commuters. That did somehow didn't, did not make it in into there. this article. Yeah, that's usually what, what we get when somebody dies. Another line that I would expect to see in something like this is at the very least, it was unclear right. at the time of this reporting whether or not the person was actually was armed. armed. Yeah. yeah. But this coverage does not demonstrate even the curiosity over whether uh, like a, a report of an armed person, that the person who was killed, actually was armed. Instead, the detail that we get was that the person who was shot by police was struck by gunfire. Yeah. That's what we're using this extra space for. I mean, like, by the time you get to press time, you would think that there would be... Like, was there a weapon found at the scene of the crime? Seems like it would be as a baseline... They always say, LAPD always says... Immediately. A weapon was recovered at the scene. If there was one. If there was, even a knife. Yeah. They immediately, immediately, yeah, yeah, and they always say if there were like drugs found, even if it has so happens that they like put them there later, yes. then that will be mentioned in the news report too. But yeah, the LA Times is, has, I think, continually failed to, like you said, even show kind of like the the, the journalistic curiosity about what mm-hmm. happened beside whatever the initial report from the police was. Which, Doesn't say anything about that the that the person was homeless. Right. The reason you know the person was homeless is because there's half an article in the LA Times and then of a person being shot and killed by police in Palms. Yeah. If there's this level of coverage over it, then the person was homeless. Right. Yeah. Like we would be hearing if it was a house person shot and killed by police right. in a neighborhood like Palms, we would be hearing more somewhat more about yeah. it and a day later where yeah. I've heard like absolutely nothing since this story came out. Age unknown is also a uh takeaway or a Look, I like, you know, from people who like knew like there is a a limited amount of information in some cases with a person who's homeless where like like the coroner's department won't put out information for days, like until days later. And Mm -hmm. like you can't connect them to a dress or whatever. I only know that the person's first name was John. I don't even know Mm -hmm. their last name. Mm -hmm. So I understand about like personal details. 
but there's a lot more of a story to tell in a, in a police shooting than we're getting here. And the only person telling the story in this article is an LAPD spokesman. And if you think about like just like the the panorama of these stories that we've had over the course of the past, the previous decade, right? Yeah. Like I would say more often than not, you would be rewarded as a journalist for for being cautious and just accepting whatever was asserted by the police in a shooting like this. Very frequently, it has turned out to be the case that the initial report from police is either uh, an intentional falsehood or is just missing significant portions of detail for some other reason. So yeah, so to take that report and to just uncritically put it forward, we've talked about a number of times on this show, is a way that the, the narratives can get misreported before the truth is actually knowable, mm-hmm. which is, which is a, a major concern, I would think, for the, the news-consuming public. That's my, I defer my only story to to this story. That's good. Alyssa? We should, we should do one of some person who dies on the streets every And we would have plenty of so many We would have room in the show. Three per day. I just wanted to talk about someone who also died, unfortunately, uh, at the end of last year. And I had meant to bring it up in the context of the conversation we had about traffic deaths. And I did not get to. So I just wanted to, if you don't know of this person or the impact that she's had on our city, her name is Courtney Everett's Micketon. And she had a podcast, Integrated Schools. And she was a mom, a white mom who had moved into a neighborhood that was largely non-white at the time. And she chose to send her children to the public school and not a public school that, you know, had been declared a good school, quote unquote, as often happens, which just means that it's a white White school school. um, and didn't send them to a charter school and didn't send them to a private school. And she picked she decided she, she, she made this decision because the best way to not only you know, help the families in the neighborhood, but also to give her own children a good experience, a better experience. And there's been a lot of uh, research that's proven that it's good, you know, the more diverse and not just racially racially diverse, but also income diverse um, communities that we are in are better for everyone who lives there. Mm -hmm. And that includes the schools. And what we see so often are parents moving into gentrifying neighborhoods because they can't afford to live in the wealthier white neighborhoods, but then they're not fully becoming part of the community by not being part of the schools. So please check out the things that she has written and the things that she has said. And her writing has been so inspirational to me and and what she's done. She founded a nonprofit that had chapters all over the country of parents that were doing this and doing it in a way that wasn't saying, I'm going to come into the school and be a savior, but I'm going to come in and be the best possible advocate or the best possible partner. Because what you see also with a lot of white parents coming into schools is that they think they can change them without ever talking to the families that have gone there for years. So it's a horrible thing that this is the way that a lot of people have found out about her work, but please do go listen to the podcast. It will of course continue. Her work continues without her, but the fact that this was happening in our own backyard and people all over the country have been inspired by her work was just, I wanted to make sure to highlight it for, especially for parents who are trying to make a decision when they're moving into a neighborhood or when they're um, trying to send their kids to school. So an incredible loss. And, and this was the same day as, as the, the press as conference that, press that we conference. talked about last week. And now on the other side of Highland Park. So yeah. it was, that's what made it even more right. striking. On a steep hill that we're... Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think a lot of people wanted to... The, the details of her death were also really sad because her elderly neighbor was trying to park their car and hit the wrong pedal, striking her in, in the street. So people tried to make it be like it's an accident, but... We, as we've seen, our car-centric society knows no bounds. And so 
of course you can park on a super steep street. Of course, people are forced to drive until their elderly age. You know, this was a neighborhood that was built when it was streetcars. And, you know, there probably weren't that many cars being parked on that street or there wasn't that many people who needed to get around. They could, there's staircases there. People would walk to go to run their errands and we've taken all that away. So I do, I do attribute it to our same, the same societal problems that create 240 traffic deaths in our in our city per year. And it, mm -hmm. it's sad that it has, it has to take away the people who are working so hard to change the equity component that makes traffic just the worst thing in our city already. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some of the news of the week and the biggest thing that Have you heard anything? By I mean, far. Have you, have you heard any stories? I mean, I think we all heard, <laughs> I think we all heard the rumble when those metal plates separated, I guess they were under Echo Park Lake. And so like Echo Park Lake suddenly <laughs> drained and these metal plates separated at the bottom and this enormous machine, I guess like a robot uh -huh. with like cool hair, sort of like <laughs> a nice part and like sort of like a quarter of a pompadour, <laughs> very nicely made date, rose out of Echo Park Lake. And ever the entire city said, "Oh, the Garcetti machine." Has oh, that's what, that, that's what that um like secret island is in the middle of Echo Park Lake. No one can go on it until you need to activate the Garcetti, the Garcetti machine. machine and you oh, press the button. I, I should say, a uh, friend of the show, Adam Conover, he was asking me the other day if I, well, this was before before I was even aware of the machine. He asked me if I had ever heard a a loud, deep thrumming sound from coming from the direction of. Uh, Star King Middle School, and I said no, but I think that might have been the the Garcetti machine getting getting warmed up. It is active now. Everybody so, should be on alert. This was a quote that I was sent more than any other thing this week. Eric Garcetti, I'm sure you heard, decided to endorse Joe Biden. Reports came out that he was going to do it the next day, and then he did it like 20 minutes after that. Now, who's that? Because I don't think out. we've literally ever talked about. That. <laughs> <laughs> Despite what I've heard. This week of the incredible amount that he did for our city, right. I'm suddenly hearing about this and what an amazing partner he's been and is going to be on homelessness. Excited to learn about all that stuff. But there was a quote in the initial coverage after Garcetti endorsed Biden and became... I didn't realize this until yeah, later. This was like a, the second day story, which yeah. was very interesting. It, the national co-chair of his campaign. Who's the other chair? Has that even been announced? Oh, so he's already just going to co-chair? to find out. Okay. And there was a quote in the initial coverage of someone from, quote, Garcetti World saying the Garcetti machine has been activated. <laughs> Can you imagine how owned you would feel if you were described in the press as being from Garcetti World? <laughs> <laughs> So this, I mean, the, the the coverage talked about how he had been, I think he had endorsed Kamala Harris. Uh, officially ad endorsed her. I actually okay. am not sure if he did either, but he does seem like he was one of he the like, like he was Kamala ready to. country yeah. people. But then he also had like tacos with Mike Bloomberg or something like earlier this week. And I thought he was going to jump on the mayors for Mike train. Like I thought for sure that was going to be... His well, he, move. He seems like he's a little bit salty about the the other mayors, and we can talk about Which that we'll also later. Talk about. All right, so that story hit the next day, right? So then we have yes. this but Atlantic he, story <laughs> about how he's like jealous, maybe of Mayor Pete, like that he was implied knows by the more article. Languages. He said <laughs> that he's not. He's very happy for Mayor Pete, and that it validates the, the premise whole of his. premise of his campaign. That mayors are qualified to run for president. But then he backed 
Biden. But the other thing in that story, in that Atlantic story, was that he, when this reporter had talked to him, he couldn't decide who to endorse. That's what he told the reporter. And this was like December This was like weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, a few weeks ago. He, there were two things mm-hmm. that were really interesting in that story. It was that he couldn't decide who to endorse. There were so many good options. But yet it was mm-hmm. it was validation for mayors, but then he didn't even back a mayor. There are several mayors or former Three. mayors and running. I, I would say the third thing would, would be that he, he was looking at the field and saying, I, I feel validated, but I'm also happy that I am not out there. The whole thing seemed kind of sour. And then, well, then the the other the other thing that was brought up by that was in the story. The Atlantic story reminded us that he didn't choose to run because he wanted to stay home, be close to family, and take care of the city. But won't being the co chair of the the Biden campaign require tons of travel and acting not against, but in addition to your duties as LA yeah. mayor? I mean, let's let's talk about that. So, I mean, in November of last year, about the time that the the Saddle Ridge fire was I think just being contained, that there was a, a story in the Times where they talked to Eric Garcetti and they said, "Do you feel with the late entrance of uh, Deval Patrick and Michael Bloomberg into this race?" that there's room for you to actually reconsider joining now. And and Garcetti said, if you look at all the things happening in L.A., referencing the fires, referencing our our homeless crisis, which we're, we're going to homelessness crisis, which we're going to talk about more later in the show, that there was a pressing need for the mayor to be attentive. And we said on this program at the time, you our, know, our conclusion was yes, was <laughs> our conclusion was yes. But our conclusion was also if you l- actually look at Garcetti, it didn't seem really clear that he was being that more present leader that he was saying that we needed. Now, a couple months later, he is taking on an enormous responsibility for Joe fucking Biden, where he's going to be riding buses around the, the country or whatever. Instead of Metro's buses. Yeah, I was going to say, when when you asked what, what Joe Biden has... That's what we get out of this. The no malarkey bus at the end of the no campaign is just going to run up and down the Wilshire. Up, I've done it. I was going to say, maybe that was what Garcetti was, was referencing in terms of all of the all the things that Biden has done for L.A. Maybe he meant opposing busing, school yeah. busing in the 70s. Oh, right. That's right. Which Garcetti would have benefited from if he ever went to a public school. <laughs> what else? What, uh, you pointed out, he talked about how much Biden would help with like the housing. Well, he well, also right. said the national homelessness crisis, which never misses an opportunity to be like, but also it's happening over Elsewhere, there. Yeah. Well, yeah, homelessness right. is down in, in most other states, except yeah. for California and Washington and Oregon, which the increase in homelessness has been so big in those three states that it has nixed out all the mm-hmm. losses in other states. So I will say that it was it's our problem. But the problem is for Biden is that he doesn't have a housing plan. He's the only candidate. Like we have a debate coming up this week. I think there's five or six have qualified and he is the front runner and has no housing plan, no plan for homelessness, no plan for creating more housing, nothing. Cause, cause that's malarkey (laughs) textbook malarkey. So that was just a, that just really struck me as being like, Oh, he's going to be our best partner on this Mm -hmm. when he literally doesn't have a plan for it. I don't mm-hmm. know what his plan would be. Meanwhile, other candidates have plans for the provision of millions of new homes, which you would think right. would have some impact on homelessness in our city. And talking about Bernie specifically, this feels like 
Bernie is very focused on city of LA. Mm -hmm. Like they're very, like the Latinx community is very pro Bernie. He led the last yep. California poll, yep. I believe. And like their efforts are really focused on LA. So this move by Garcetti is easy to see as like kind of a check on that strategy. Well, and, and also, I, I don't know if we ever talked about Bernie had a huge rally on, Ven on Venice Beach mm -hmm. and we had Mike Bonin give what I thought was an incredible speech introducing him and endorsing him. There were other council members there, too. But this puts uh, Garcetti at, at odds with now some of the council, which probably would have happened anyway. But it just really wants you to it makes me think about, like, is this what anyone in L.A. really wants? What? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when we talk, when you say it, it it's a, a check on Bernie's like pro Latinx strategy. Is it just like getting a big name from the LA area and offering Angelinos literally nothing, but just like here's a you know, here's a yeah. flashy guy? That, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like you're saying, Alyssa, we have never talked about him. We've talked about presidents coming through here. I remember the one time he uh, came here and went to King Taco with uh, with Garcetti, Garcetti which yeah. is Garcetti's like spot where. Just so, like Newsom went there and Brown, like a, yeah. yes, just a revolving door. But um, the, all the donations in L.A. were going to Harris mm -hmm. and to some extent Buttigieg. Right. And mm -hmm. a lot of the, like the, the biggest number of donations was Sanders. And we talked about like w there were certain like Warren areas. There wasn't a single mm -mm. Biden constituency in the entire city. And now Garcetti, like the face of the city, the person who represents the city, this is who he has picked as his. Canada. Yeah, I mean, so with with although I don't I don't believe that Garcetti ever did formally endorse Kamala Harris with Kamala's exit from the race. Robert Garcia, also right. mayor of Long Beach, was also in the news for although immediately overshadowed by the mayor of L.A., was also in the news for endorsing Joe Biden. We have seen pretty much everybody who was in the, the hashtag Kamala country going their own separate ways. So there isn't going to be a candidate it doesn't seem like at this point with the with the primary less than two months away at this mm -hmm. point doesn't seem like there's going to be any kind of unifying force among the political establishment they are all kind of dispersing to their their separate camps but yeah so we had joe buscaino bringing pete Buttigieg did through. he endorse him i don't know i, I don't think i don't think event. that he did but i mean yeah. that that event. seems like a pretty strong signal. And then we have a number of, of endorsements for, like you said, for Bernie, I think Mike Bonin and, and Gil Cedillo. And, Gil Cedillo. Cedillo. Yeah. and so like the, the candidates are, or the council members and the, the political establishment in LA is, is definitely splitting up into, into its different factions. But I like, how big of a deal is it? Do you actually think well, when, when was, it's all yeah, said and done, like how big of a amazing. deal do you think it actually is that Eric Garcetti endorses the Joe tweets, Biden nationally? The tweets were all from like people who had NYT in their, mm -hmm. in their names, their Twitter names. And, and we're saying so, they were like, this deal. is a big deal. Big right oh, this is and, and literally no one with like LAT in their yeah. names. Jenna, Jennifer <laughs> Rubin from, yes. from the Washington post. <gasps> Right. Wow, yeah. this, is, this is jaw dropping. And I, nobody even here, I think everybody, I mean, yeah, I, I can't think of anybody here that said it was of any significance. We all kind of reported on it. I guess not thinking 
it was surprising. Are, I don't think are I was you surprised? surprised? And why not? Though? Yeah, why I, not? I wasn't really surprised, but I really did think he. I really did think he was going to go for yeah. Mike after seeing that tweet of him hanging out with Mike. Yeah, that would have that would have made more sense to me. Yeah, that would have like say. on a strategic level made more sense to me. Why? And also, but why though? Because Raising the also, prominence of the mayor in terms yes. of national politics, the climate like, thing, which he claims to be the climate mayor, and yeah. he's got. I mean, he's the climate emperor right now, and he's uh, Mayor Bloomberg has done not Mayor Mike Bloomberg has done so much for for the, like the international climate. I don't know what do you call it continuum. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I, I don't. I don't know because like I don't think that Eric Garcetti gives a shit about the office of mayor. Or like boosting its national prominence or really cities in general either, I, I guess. So did he care about like the validity of being a mayor and running for president? I think he did in the limited sense that he was going to be a mayor who was running for president. But now that's clearly not the case. He's not running for president. Whatever he's doing in 2024 or 2028 depending on whether or not we have a Democrat in office in the presidency, it's not going to be being the mayor of Los Angeles. So it, irrespective, he's going to be doing it from probably a larger platform or he's going to have shuffled off to Buffalo. I don't know which, but he is going... So you see this as angling for a cabinet position or something like that. Or if not that, a party a party, uh, oh, like a, a DNC chair. I, yeah, I don't think he wants that. to pick a loser, yes. basically. And right. Bloomberg is a loser. <laughs> and <laughs> Buttigieg is likely a loser. I mean, he picked the safest right. possible option, the most right. I agree uh, with that. hewing yeah. to the Democrat establishment option, which, I mean, he he has a history of doing. So I, I can't say I'm terribly surprised. And and thinking about it more over the course of the past couple of days, I definitely have, have come to realize, like, yeah, he he never will have to worry about being the president who runs or the mayor who runs for president. He's never gonna yeah. have to worry about that because he already made that decision and it didn't happen. Uh, the, the, per- the reason I mentioned the DNC, DNC thing is because I feel like I hear him mentioned alongside more than any other person, Tom Perez, for whatever mm. reason. Interesting. Like mm. they're constantly mm. in conversation about different things, including in this Atlantic article mm-hmm. where they mentioned that he's been putting out feelers, quote, to, to Tom Perez, Democratic National Committee chair, in hopes of positioning himself as a player in an expected platform fight at the Democratic convention in July. What that means like, I don't really understand, like, a player. Yeah, I don't know. And now he's uh, officially part of the the Biden campaign, so that he will be part of whatever fight plays out regardless. Yeah. But, yeah, no, that that is interesting. It's uh, That seems like it would be a good career path for him to take from the mayoralty because yeah. it's like uh, you can just be a flack. So that's and- where he'll be in. July, we know, is yeah. in Milwaukee. So that part of his that part schedule, of his schedule is, is clear. Lock it in. Out. Yeah. Uh, oh, something you mentioned about Buttigieg being here in Buscaino and Buscaino introducing him. I saw a lot of people mentioning the fact that Joe Buscaino's city council district is like two and a half times as big as the city of South Bend. Yeah. And everyone is like so excited for Pete Buttigieg to come into town. Nobody knows who in his own district who Joe, Joe Buscaino is, is yeah. probably compared to Pete Buttigieg. And yet one of the 15 council members oversees a vastly larger population get involved in local politics people. <laughs> i mean but also you know like the, the the other thing is if you're a pete Buttigieg and like in every conceivable world i can think of you're not going to be president at the end of 2020 then 
that famous fleeting, right? Like yeah. people care about you for a little bit, but but yes, a person like council member Buscaino down in the harbor and in the uh, shoestring annex has an insane amount of power over a huge, num- a huge number of people and just nobody knows or cares what any of that entails. Let's go back to truly local news at long last. There was a cleanup. So we've heard a lot of talk about a new kind of cleanup of homeless encampments in the city of L.A. where they don't necessarily kick people out. They clean up their space and like send outreach workers and it's a, these like care teams. It's a gentler way of doing things. This week, that seemed to change pretty dramatically. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were multiple significant, there were sweeps, like entire sweeps. Mm -hmm. These really started Christmas Day, right? You told me that there were sweeps on Christmas Day. That, that I think, was closer to a cleanup. But, I mean, that was like, the. it was at 6 a.m. on Mm -hmm. Christmas Day, which is, first of all, don't make these people work that day. Yeah, Yeah, that's the other thing. Uh, And second, like, that means that they have to start getting their stuff packed up and cleared at three. And if they didn't manage to do that, then their stuff is taken away. So So what happened this week? This week, there were sweeps in John Lee's district, CD12. There was a sweep in CD3 around Encino and uh, Bob Blumenfield's district. And a massive one of in Sepulveda Basin, where somewhere between 50 and 100 people live, in Nuri Martinez's district, the new city council president. Yeah. There were lots of people who showed it's a it's a very large complex where people live in different parts of Sepulveda Basin. Lots of them they had to post warning. Lots of them didn't know this was coming. They didn't do any kind of outreach for like to help people it's also like prepare. wilderness i mean it's exactly like, it's like a large urban creek that goes the watershed that goes through like the middle of a forest so which are the which were the grounds under which this sweep happened because there are still laws around not being and in fact new laws i believe about not being able to camp in wilderness areas right. because of the risk of fire, fire and things like that and flood in this situation if we had yes rain. yes and so massive, massive, so many people displaced and not a single one was offered any kind of replacement shelter or housing. They were all just forced to like scatter yeah. into the wind. There was a, a story in the LA Daily News by Ariel Plata, I think is how you pronounce her name. And that talks about how some of them, some of the people there have Section 8 vouchers and are very close to like getting into housing and but like now have to go on that journey of finding housing from a completely new location and they have no idea where it is or how close they really are to getting into a place. Really speaking to the the precarity of the situation, I mean, you, Hayes, have a ton of experience of trying to, if not a ton, at least certainly more than anybody else I know, of trying to actually physically get people, individuals linked up to available housing and what a difficult position it is. And if you are in a situation where you have some semblance of security, you're in a community where you feel safe. I'm talking about in the Sepulveda Basin here. And then police and sanitation workers come through and just disperse everybody. Now, while you're waiting to actually get into housing, you are so much more vulnerable just Mm -hmm. as you're uh, like, just as you are on the verge of being able to exit actual homelessness for the first time in years, the city is coming through and again, impinging on your ability to to live in a way that is safe and secure, relatively yeah. speaking. And I mean, when you think about the hierarchy of 
what is an acceptable situation when it comes to homelessness? A lot of people in the basin, I don't know if you saw pictures, had built out these like very complex structures. I mean, these weren't just like tents or cardboard. They built essentially makeshift houses Mm -hmm. to live in in this area, like in the trees, essentially, where you think like, yes, there's a fire risk. But if the alternative is this person ending up on the sidewalk, a lot of people in their 60s, basically, that had developed a, a comfortable living environment, like why would we prefer sending them just like out in the city to like start it over again and do it someplace else where they're much, much more vulnerable and much more likely to get sick or be harmed in some other way. This is, I think, a good segue to another piece of Eric Garcetti news that I somehow almost forgot about, which is that a story came out that I believe the headline was something like enemies in public. Garcetti and Donald Trump are quietly forming a deal on homelessness. Yeah. And what the article essentially said was that Garcetti and in particular Ben Carson, director of housing and urban development, secretary of housing and urban development, have come up with like basically some funding. The the country, the federal government is going to provide funding for emergency shelters and some degree of medical services for city of Los Angeles. No mention of the catch, if there is one. Sure. So it's hard to really say if it is just hassle free money for emergency shelters, that would be an improvement on our current situation. Optional the shelter that people can enter and be more comfortable than they are on the street if that's what they want to do. I think there's a possibility, given the way the federal government and the Trump administration operates that this uh, shelter will not be optional. And this goes hand in hand with something that we've talked about on the show a lot, which is I think there's a possibility that the city is trying to put up as quickly as possible enough beds to satisfy the terms of the decision by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals that says that they can't sweep people off the street until they have adequate shelter. Yeah. Satisfies the Jones decision, which says a similar thing. So eventually they can say, OK, we've got the beds. They're in these this right. in, in, this enormous shelter on federal land. They're in these other shelters like peppered around the city. The beds are there. You either go in to these beds or you are swept off the street entirely or you go to jail, basically. Right. To me. That is not necessarily better than our current situation. It would be much better to provide adequate shelter, but shelter at essentially like gunpoint is, I don't know if it's an improvement. This is another like quick LA story, but, and I'll I'll make this like as vague as possible, but there was someone who Jasila had worked with and had gotten into shelter that the shelter did not stick for reasons understandable to like everyone. There's many reasons. Yes. Yeah, it's it's a hard thing. And it wasn't to anything like the person who went into the shelter didn't like commit any kind of crime. So look, a lot of people who go into like who end up in homelessness are unconventional in, in one way or another sure. in a way that is not necessarily like easily received in large group environments right. like a mm-hmm. shelter is. Yep. Uh, and there's a person who would you know, like totally good situation in like their own space and like finds their community and things like that. But sometimes in a shelter, it only takes a few people to like start harassing you or whatever. And like you, then you feel unsafe in this shelter environment. Mm -hmm. So mutual decision to say, no, thank you. Like we're, we'll explore other options. If we ended up in a situation where shelter was mandatory, if you had to stay in one of these places, then that person who went back onto the street would be threatened 
with arrest, jail, whatever, unless they stayed in that situation. Right. Ah. Or there'd be only like one option. Something we've talked about before. They'd be like, you'd have to go to this place this day mm-hmm. and there wouldn't be multiple options in your own neighborhood mm-hmm. or living situations or, you know, pets or no pets, all these things that we've talked about. Right. So it could be, it would be like a one size fits all solution and that's all you get. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's what I can see. happening. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a, re- it's ultimately a restriction of civil uh, movement, civil liberties and abrogation of, of personal freedoms that we would not accept for any other group of people. Well, I, it's 2020. So I have to say any other group of people except for undocumented border crossers at this point. But still, it should be something that we're looking at through that lens. I would say the fact that the county of Los Angeles and Mayor Eric Garcetti are engaging in these talks with Ben Carson, like you said, Hayes, we don't know if this is no strings attached funding, although it's not. It's just not. Like the, the, the fact of the matter is, informed guess that they would it would come with a, a demand to increase enforcement. Ben Carson views like even Section Eight housing as a, a flagrant abuse of the the federal power of the purse. Donald Trump, well, he didn't like the the thought of having Section Eight tenants in his buildings. I'll say that, and like so. We, we know that these people are not supportive of these programs. We know that when they say that that we have a, a crisis in California, what they're not what they're not referring to is the fact that we have people on our streets, our neighbors living in conditions that would not be tolerated in any other developed country or developing country in most cases. Mm-hmm. And and we allow that to remain the case because we can't stomach the thought of actually like providing a safety net and sufficient housing and services for people who are are suffering with oftentimes illness and addiction or sometimes just like the loss of a job. They are not talking about that. What they're talking about is that it is, in their view, aesthetically disreputable that major American cities do not look sufficiently wealthy to the degree that a, a man like Donald Trump thinks that they should. So the way that you resolve those two crises is completely different. In one case, you actually have to provide services. You actually have to be compassionate with people. And in the other case, you literally just start trying to make dis- people disappear. And the the fact that Eric Garcetti continues to have what I will just keep calling his my what big teeth you have energy about <laughs> the federal government is is at this point, it's no longer something I would say this is the week in which you can no longer say anything but that Eric Garcetti is partner in whatever eventual outcomes the Trump administration wants to see happen in Los Angeles. He is welcoming Ben Carson and Marbet, what's his name, Richard? Robert, 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 Marbet. Robert Marbet to LA with open arms. He's the uh, new, basically the homelessness czar that's mm-hmm. been appointed he by- He believes in a housing fourth strategy right, rather than yeah. housing first. And, and this is this is a case where we are we are seeing fully revealed the, the operating logic of city and county of Los Angeles. After uh, the Martin versus Boise, the, the, the Supreme Court decided not to take up that case. There was a question about how the city would respond. Now we see Nuri Martinez, new council president, moving ahead with what are clearly sweeps in, mm-hmm. in flagrant violation of that decision, I would say. Mm-hmm. And we, we're seeing the the federal government being welcomed into our city for a larger role in what will eventually become some sort of detention center. Well, let's just use that as an example of what happened in the Sepulveda Basin, right? So this is, it's people being moved and you would... 
you would take, you would go to the people experiencing homelessness. You would say, here's where you have to go by this day. If you don't show up there or something, uh, you will be, you will be criminalized. You will be, you will be yes. like, you know, on the, uh, they can, you would be able to say that we, that not going, not reporting to where you're supposed to sleep or something like that is against the law. But at the same time, what you're talking about with, with Ben Carson and with all these other people, the federal government that are trying to roll back actively rolling back discrimination, yeah. uh, safeguards have been put in place that have tried to make sure that you couldn't use, say, take a section eight voucher and go somewhere and, and get some place, a safe place to live that a landlord couldn't discriminate against you. That's being rolled back at the same time from the federal government. So you have like, if somebody gives you a voucher and then you go to the motel or you go to the apartment building and try to use your voucher and then you have basically no ability to, no legal recourse to say, hey, this person didn't accept my voucher because I'm black or because I am, you know, a lesbian. Like all these different things that we are seeing now, mm-hmm. we, they're, it's being taken away from the, from the federal government at the same time. Yeah, I would say, uh, so, so we've seen multiple people in, in city and county government during the past week talk about the federal government, talk about their role as a partner in California's homelessness crisis and, and in LA's homelessness crisis. I honestly, the burden of proof is on you. If you are a public official who represents the welfare of Americans and Angelinos, you are somebody who is responsible for putting out any kind of credible information that you might have to to let people know that you are doing your due diligence to protect people. I would say at this point, it is not being alarmist to say that we are headed in a very dangerous direction with regard to what could happen to our unhoused populations. I think it is okay to be alarmed. I'm frankly very alarmed Mm -hmm. by it. Given that we already are in an incredibly dangerous situation with them, and it's poised to get like potentially. And so then, even at the worse. same time, and under the same, in the same day, we've got our governor saying he's going to step up homelessness programs as well. Yes. which feels menacing now because you don't really know what that means. We have this language coming through in this executive order that's like fairgrounds and mm-hmm. formal former mental institutions and we will find anywhere we can to house people we will put up temporary structures and this again is a, a, it could be great it could be what we need it could be we could finally be getting the money to do some of these things that we've been trying to do to get people off the streets but it doesn't sound like people are going to have a choice and i think that that is what is very troubling in all the language in all the sense of urgency and it's all coming out right now and it's all coming out before the homelessness count which mm-hmm. is happening later this month and Scott and I were just talking about this before we started recording like is all of this just to try to get our numbers down certainly the sweeps when we're out there trying to count things I mean we really think this is a coincidence that the sweeps are getting stepped up dramatically like right before the count like to and me that's like unlikely. the 21st 22nd 23rd or something and like i'll that, call it right? a specific january. a specific example i helped out with the count in silver lake last year and i remember going to do the count on the hoover and temple overpass uh, which is in cd13 where there was a i think a zero percent increase in homelessness last year compared to a 16 percent increase citywide and that that camp was gone yeah 
And I don't really think it's a coincidence necessarily. I think there's a concerted effort on the on the part of some elected officials and the police department to get rid of as much of the visible population as you can. Because even if they're still homeless in Los Angeles, they're harder to count. Sure. And, and maybe they're just in somebody else's district and they're by somebody else's problem. This is something we talked about last year. Council member David Rue in District 4, he came out because his district had the single largest increase in homelessness. His spokesman told the Los Feliz Ledger that, you know, if you're on one side of Sunset, you're in Council District 4. If you're on the other side, you're in Council District 13. And so he was saying it was kind of just luck of the draw. But I think that we can see that this is on council members' minds, if they can disrupt the, the, it's well known, if you can disrupt the fabric of a community, especially one like we're talking about in the Sepulveda Basin, where people have been there for a long amount of time, and they have, they have that feeling of security and community where they are. Once that is disrupted, all of those people tend to just scatter because now they have to start over again and try and find a place where they can feel safe again. Mm -hmm. And very likely it's going to be out of council president Nuri Martinez's district. And Mm -hmm. maybe that's the only goal, but that's incredibly cruel if that's the case. Uh, They talked about that with neighboring cities too. I think in Torrance, there was in in fact evidence that they had in Culver City of just like shoving people across the border into- And that Santa Monica had done that into LA, yes. Yeah. I will say the like the secret BFF Garcetti Trump thing does in this same week. It makes it a little more difficult for him to be national co-chair of Biden's campaign. The fact that he has to constantly be saying, but also President Trump is just <laughs> a, such a great partner I mean, who if, I welcome his involvement on anything. If you were going to do this, like if you were going to get and, and we know the federal money has been hung up, we haven't been able to receive it from the state because we well, for one for one thing, they didn't release the home. They didn't release the homelessness count numbers until very, very late in the mm-hmm. year last year. Mm-hmm. So usually we use those numbers to plan as a state and figure out where the resources should be allocated. So I guess we had $650 million of emergency funding that was in limbo for months because of federal decisions, because, well, supposedly, I don't know, I guess, mm. I guess we believe the state saying that, right? So, so again, we have this money that we can't get because we're not cooperating with the federal government, maybe. And then we also rely on them for things like what we've talked about here before, like HHA's housing, like, it's great that these projects are opening, they're just taking a really long time. And if, if the cooperation that they could give us was guaranteed 100% federal funds, you know, no questions asked for those projects, we might be able to get them built faster because we wouldn't have to cobble together all this different funding streams. But is that going to be, is that the the price we pay for, you know, saying that we cooperated with yeah. them? I mean, if yeah. you're going to do it, like at least maybe find a way to not be so obvious about it, because I feel like that really taints the response now, right? It does. It does. And I, I like I said, I really think burden of proof is on that. Burden of proof is on you. If you're if you are thinking about collaborating with the federal government in any way, it, burden of proof is on you to show that that is something that you should be doing mm-hmm. and not the other way around. I will say Eric Garcetti is is right in line with our democratic leaders in this state in terms of overweening respect to the office of the presidency, even as Donald Trump continual like he's been doing that with the Olympics for years, going out there and saying. Donald Trump is my partner in this. Right then, in line with our Democratic leader. And he's well ahead of well, basically you're right. anyone else you're right. in, the, it, in the country. Newsom was the only like one. Jeff I could, Van Drew level. 
Trump could uh, retweet MAGA 420 with a Garcetti getting called a cuck by Pepe the Frog and it wouldn't yes. actually matter. He basically at this point. did. Like the same day, like all of them tweeted how horrible California and Democrats mm-hmm. are. And yes. it's just like, okay, thank Doesn't, you. It does not yes. even thank you matter so much. at this point. Thank you. Guys. Thank you. <laughs> May I please yeah. have another? And it puts you in like a very tough position if you work in homelessness to feel this way about new shelters, which I, I want to underscore would be a huge improvement on what we have. Have. But whenever it's brought up that the fact that it comes with the promise of increased enforcement in the neighborhood where it happens, they say, and we'll also have patrols going around all the time to make sure to just sweep up anyone who's like sleeping in the area. It's like, OK, well, now it makes it harder for me to advocate for this thing that we really could use. And the same thing with this significant thing. It's like a billion dollars that Gavin Newsom put into the budget dedicated to services. It's like, well, you know, it's 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 horrible to have to say, like, well, where exactly is this? going and like in the case of the shelters not something is not an end game does not pull anyone out of homelessness it's a great step on the path to getting people into housing which we don't have which we also still have to talk about in this episode the newsom budget the big headline i think was the homelessness money there was money towards decreasing the teacher shortage i think like 200 million dollars towards recruiting and training new teachers there was money to fund expanding the California as a no-kill state, which I believe either Texas or like I know like city of Austin is or more and more places around the country where shelter there like you cannot have a no-kill shelter. And they want to make California that as well. They are expecting a surplus for I think seven out of the last eight years, some incredible run of Success that rainy day fund man, must be getting. It's very large. It's um, large, and yet, and yet, it's, <laughs> it would still be wiped out by a single recession. So as long as things remain good, you know, just keep on adding to it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, and also that it always ends up getting depleted like after this budget process like there are more asks and things like that yep. and more money let's let's just like remind listeners the way that california's budget works since we are such an enormous state the the budget proposed by the governor was almost a quarter of a trillion dollars i believe in the out of general revenue possibly the largest ever at this point but what happens is we get the proposal initially in january from the governor that doesn't obviously go into effect the budget will be approved by the legislature towards the end of the fiscal year in june mm-hmm. but then there will also be a may revise that happens it's kind of like groundhog's day the governor comes back out and says it looks like we're going to have more money than we expected right. or mm-hmm. less oh, man. so so really this is the least con- consequential of these but it does set out the the governor's priorities for his second year. In other big uh, Gavin Newsom news, we're hearing reports that he is whipping support for SB 50 behind the scenes. Hearing it from him. Oh, well, he, he, so he said openly that he is supporting this. Yeah, that's right. You mentioned that to me personally. So now you can say it on the podcast. <laughs> So yeah, so during during Newsom's I think marathon three hour press conference, yeah. did you listen to the whole thing? Not Most so of the coverage I saw was it reporters was complaining about yeah. how long it was. Gavin it was Newsom, also Friday, we were like, "Come on, like we got like." <laughs> Gavin Newsom did mention that we, we prepped last week that the SB fifty amendments were about to roll out with the resumption of the legislative session. Gavin Newsom did mention that he was putting support behind the the bill SB fifty and trying to get legislators to a yes vote. Yeah, on. so he is actually say, whipping SB 50 for this vote. Would increase housing along transit lines and in job rich areas. It's and it's. Uh, 
and mostly everywhere. Formerly known as SBA 27, it would also turn every single family <laughs> lot into a make it eligible to be zoned for a fourplex. If you start Is this listening your inner to, model? if you <laughs> just, like, I'm so tired. If of you start this. listening to a random point of a random episode of this show, we yeah, probably are talking about it. Some respect. <laughs> so the changes came out. Let's talk about the the changes. I would say they were at first glance less impactful than I had expected, or at least not a, a directly addressing some of the concerns about SB 50 that that both activist groups and pro single family housing groups had <laughs> but i think in a way it was scott Wiener, senator scott weiner who uh, came up with this bill his office trying to throw a bone to everyone and basically say every municipality has at least two years to come up with their own plan what did you think so i i saw a lot of response to this that this was basically just a sop to the the nimbiest of the nimby cities that didn't want to build anything did you was that your takeaway or do you think that there's there's more in there than that i mean look so right now i believe areas that are defined as sensitive communities with a certain level of like poverty and uh, had like rent burden and things like that have is i believe it's five years i'm have up to five years yeah, yeah. so they w- weren't affected by this provision no but I think the di- the difference from, from that I could tell from the the changes is it's not only about it's not as much about these high quality bus routes, which is what worked everybody up into a real frenzy. I'm talking about the NIMBYs. I think what you're talking about the 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 allocation in this that I think made those people less upset was this idea that you could not only decide how where your housing would go but you could also decide how your transportation Mm -hmm. service would change in a way that as long as you could demonstrate that emissions would be going down so i think that was a real concession maybe to say a wealthy community that didn't want to you know would have been forced maybe to build housing along say a rail line or something like that but if you could show that you are doing a great job in making sure that people can get to work without getting in cars, then maybe you didn't have to zone so high or something. Or as long as you put the density elsewhere, right. as long as they came up with the house. Pedestrianize all your streets or something like that. I don't know. Like you yeah. come up with something, a different solution. So Scott Weiner has said he's often uh, attacked as being a um, anti-local control senator by pretty much anybody who has some <laughs> amount of local control. But he <laughs> has frequently defended himself as being pro-local control. And he, during the past couple of years, he was using his one of his other bills, the, the 4A last call bill as uh, evidence of that, where it would have given cities, major cities in California, the ability to create their own plans in a similar way to what is now being amended into SB 50, create their own plans that would support through public transportation or the availability of taxi services, et cetera, the, the later service hours for alcohol. This kind of is in line in my mm-hmm. mind with that where he is still saying, like, I, as, as a senator, he supports local control of the cities, their ability to determine where housing should go, which is an important element of local control, and taking off the table the ability to do nothing, essentially. That, yeah. And that is, that is how his office views it. I personally don't like local control. But <laughs> so, I mean, I feel like we, we talked about things that were much more would have been much larger changes to this bill than this last week. Yeah. However, ultimately going to need some number of the votes from these suburban or inner ring 
cities yeah. close to in the large counties like Los Angeles County, you're going to need some of those mm-hmm. votes somewhere. So maybe this was unavoidable. And I don't let's, know. Let's talk about, too, the the lack of advocate support. You know, we had somebody like Act LA, which yeah. we know we're working with them over the last year to perhaps strengthen the sensitive community guidelines or change other aspects of it. We don't know. Um, and they said that they could not still still could not support it as presented this week. The press conference itself, which is being held in Oakland, was disrupted by protesters. It was the Moms for Housing group that have taken over a vacant house in Oakland yep. and become a real force for discussing, uh, you know, the bigger issues mm-hmm. about speculation and why we have vacant yep. houses in the middle of these cities where we have a housing crisis. So we do still have a lot of pushback. And like you said, what would what would get these advocates on board or is this not something that is going to get supported by them? This was kind of my, this was kind of my big takeaway from, from these. And I I posted something on online to this effect. It's my understanding that there are, that we're still expecting more amendments to come, particularly as they relate to the sensitive communities. I do kind of wonder about the strategy of obviously Monday, Monday morning quarterbacking here, but I do wonder about the strategy of rolling the bill back out with these changes as opposed to potentially just putting it out in the form that it was in last year, mm-hmm. because then everybody is familiar more or less with the state that it was in. The strong reaction from a group like ACT LA. I would say is is concerning because they have been in discussions with Scott Wiener's office about changes to the bill. You would expect that if those were either near conclusion that that Act LA was okay with that they might say like, you know, we're holding off. But their tone was actually pretty pretty negative towards mm-hmm. towards the bill that was released last Monday. Well, they so. said they would still be working towards. They're still working. They're still, yeah, I thought it, still, I thought it was a pretty strong statement. It was. It was yeah. It was. It was. It surprised me in in that it makes me. I, I agree with you. It it makes me wonder if we if the strategy for bills is that you work through it in public. Maybe that is something that I don't know about how we do these things at the state level, but that you. You kind of hear you need to publicly hear the concerns and then you publicly address them, not like in these, you know, backroom deals mm-hmm. that take place when the, you know, everybody's in recess. So maybe that's the reason. If so, that's good, I guess, if if we are if we do ex- expect more. But again, the timing is also strange just from like what I can see from talking to people with, say, the Rena numbers out. Mm-hmm. Right. So at the same time. People are tying these ideas together now. We have this. I was on. I moderated this panel um, last week, which was an APA American Planning Association and um, Westside Urban Forum event, and it was about where do we put 1.3, 1.4 million housing units in the you know in the region. And now people have kind of tied that with SB 50, yeah. and that is a, an attractive thought for some people and a terrifying thought for some people. And so I wonder now how if it needs to be more directly addressed? Do we need to start seeing those models again? Or, you know, do, where do we, you know, where we like, you kind of draw the little gradient and it's like, oh, everything is fourplexes or a couple high rises or something like that. And mm-hmm. where they go, because that's what this event felt like. And there was no real consensus from the people that were there. Yeah. I, and I, I really wonder, I mean, so we, we are expecting some, some subsequent additions to this. I think, you know, like you, like you're kind of hinting at, like, this is kind of more public, it's just a higher profile bill, I think, than any that we've really seen go through the, the state legislature in quite a while. 
So maybe maybe there just is no right way to to get through that amendment process in public. If there are going to be uh, subsequent amendments to this, there's not much time for that to happen while the bill is still in Senate. Mm-hmm. It could, of course, happen. There are a number of assembly co-authors could happen that there are friendly changes to the bill that happen after it maybe moves out of the Senate. But if we are going to see the kind of changes to to the bill that will change the position of groups like ACT LA and other tenants groups, I would expect it to happen really soon, honestly. It would have to. Right? Yeah. Because it has to be, what, voted on in this pass out of the Senate by the end of the month, right? Right. So excepting for the case where they really just, yeah, exactly. It's got to be, it's got to be in the next couple of weeks there. It's already half over this month. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about whatever the changes are made to it a week from now when we come back and do LA Podcast because we are out of time to talk about this stuff anymore this week. Thank you for listening. We will see you again soon next week on LA Podcast.